Good afternoon and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and in conjunction with WERU, our community radio station. My name is CJ Walk. I use he, him pronouns, and I am the host for today's episode of Common Ground Radio. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. right here on WERU. Previous editions of our show and other great shows can be found in the archive section of the WERU website at www.weru.org, as well as on the WERU app. For today's show, we will be discussing PFAS chemicals, or what's commonly referred to as forever chemicals, and their presence in our soils and waters and environment. PFAS is an acronym, PFAS, which stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, which are man-made chemicals that are stable and persistent in the environment, bioaccumulative, toxic at low concentrations, and easily transferred to groundwater and other media. PFAS accumulate in humans and animals. Studies suggest PFAS exposure can lead to increased cholesterol levels, changes in liver enzymes, decreased vaccine response in children, decreased birth weight, thyroid disease, increased risk of high blood pressure or preeclampsia in pregnant women, and increased risk of kidney or testicular cancer. PFAS have been widely used in household products such as Teflon, Gore-Tex, and Scotchgard in industrial settings as early as the 1950s. Because of their broad usage, they can end up in our groundwater, drinking water, and soils where they can enter the food chain. In particular, PFAS chemicals can end up in a wastewater treatment plant sludge or in septic tanks from everyday household activities, as well as from industrial sources. These sludge residuals, also called biosolids, have been permitted by many states to be spread on farm soils for the last several decades for beneficial reuse of organic material. Unfortunately, until recently, the presence of PFAS in these residuals was unknown by all who recommended and used them. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that Mofka is situated on Wabanaki land. We thank the Wabanaki communities for caring for this land sustainably from time immemorial. We want to acknowledge that Mofka is intertwined with the colonialist history of this land. Many of the principles and practices of organic agriculture are rooted in thousands of years of indigenous knowledge from around the world. So today on Common Ground Radio, I'm here with three other Mofka staff members today to talk about PFAS and forever chemicals that are uh, kind of in the news lately and seeing how this is affecting uh, main farms and, and activities that, that people can take part in to be more aware of the situation. My guests here today uh, for the show, we have Ryan Dennett, and Ryan is the Director of Farmer Programs for Mofka. So Ryan, thanks for being here today. And then we have Jackie Martinez-Perkins, and Jackie is uh, the Organic Livestock Specialist for Mofka. 
And uh, Jackie, thanks for being here. And we also have Caleb Goosen, who is MOFCA's Organic Crop and Conservation Specialist. Uh, so thanks again, everyone, for being here. And I think if we just kind of loop around, give you each uh, a second here to describe your work from MOFCA in general, then we'll get more into the, the PFAS topic for today. So Ryan, could I jump to you just to give you that brief int intro piece? Sure. Um, thanks, CJ. Uh, I manage a department of six staff and farmer programs um, to help them run a lot of programs and offer, um, I think this year was over 137 farm consultations, uh, direct technical assistance to farms. Um, so that is my role in farmer programs. Great, thank you, Ryan. And Jack, I jump up to you as uh, organic livestock specialist in the work you do from OFCA. Thanks, CJ. Um, as a member of farmer programs, I do a lot of that technical assistance and farm consultation work um, with the dairy and livestock producers that we have, um, both certified and those that want to use organic practices. Great, thanks, Jackie. And Caleb, over to you as organic crop and conservation specialist. Yes, I have a role similar to Jackie's working with our commercial uh, growers, uh, but I also do a lot of work with sort of homesteaders and home gardeners as well. Um, and it can be a wide ranging discussions at times. Thanks again, everyone for being here. Ryan, if I could ask you about some of the collaborative efforts that MOFCA is involved in, in terms of, of working on this PFAS issue, and, and we can discuss some resources uh, available to folks. Sure. Um, it's really been a collaborative effort to address this PFAS issue. Um, I would say the main projects we're involved in, uh, Jackie and I are part of a, a cohort supported by the USDA funded farmer and rancher stress assistance network uh, to target helping to relieve stress for farmers related to PFAS. And so we're doing that in a number of ways. We've created a frequently asked questions document printed in Spanish and English to send to all of our farms. And it's also available on our website. And we are working with consultants to develop some guidance for farms who are interested in testing for PFAS to help them make informed decisions, uh, especially because testing for PFAS is very expensive and you have to be um, really careful when you're doing it to get accurate results. So I think it's important for these farms to have guidance about what they should be testing and how they should be going about it. Um, and then the other main piece that comes to mind is that uh, Caleb has been working closely with the Department of Environmental Protection and uh, University of Maine Cooperative Extension to do some research on the ground about PFAS. So I guess, Ryan, in terms of if someone was looking to kind of get some more information or to reach out for some help, where, where would people want to be looking? Sure, they could go to our website. Um, if they Google PFAS main farmer information and support on the MOFCA website, we have a number of links for information you can find out where biosludge and residuals have been 
spread or where they were, where licenses were held for spreading, which does not exactly tell you whether or not they were spread, but gives you some information. And then it also links to the pages um, that the Department of Ag and the Department of Environmental Protection have on their websites. So I think as an introductory piece, Caleb, could I look to you uh, to kind of explain what is, what is PFAS? What is it that we're talking about? And a little bit of history of the, the material over time. Yeah, so PFAS is just an acronym for per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, which is a mouthful, um, but it's a, it's a class of chemicals, essentially thousands of different chemicals, um, some of which are really well-known and documented human health concerns, and many, many more that just haven't been studied because there's just so many of them. They are entirely man-made. Um, they don't exist in nature, uh, but they're very useful for a lot of things. So they have, since the 1940s, been produced and used in lots and lots of different products. And uh, that means they've gone out into the environment. Uh, the main thing that makes them useful is a, a fluorine atom that is put onto carbon atoms in a large molecule. So there's, uh, if you think of like a saturated fat, uh, a, a, a saturated fatty acid is, uh, is a similar type molecule, but instead of it being saturated with hydrogen atoms, it's saturated with fluorine atoms. And uh, that gives it lots of different interesting chemical properties, but it also makes it highly resistant to bacterial decay. So that's why they're called forever chemicals. They don't really break down in the environment. Um, and when they do, they often are just breaking down to smaller chemicals of the same class. So they're still PFAS. They're just a different type of PFAS at that point. The documented health risks are varied. And of course, I'm not a medical doctor. I, I can only speak to this uh, a little bit, but it uh, has been, they've been associated with immune function, um, including vaccine response, uh, different cancers, cholesterol, uh, reproductive issues, many other uh, concerns. So they are known to be an issue. And uh, unfortunately, they're becoming more ubiquitous uh, over time as human activity continues to spread them. In general, what are some of those products that are out there that would contain one of the PFAS chemicals? Probably the most well-known PFAS chemical is called Teflon. So anywhere you've heard of Teflon, and if you think of Teflon, and think of similar applications, right? It's water resistant, highly hydrophobic, which means it repels water. Um, they're also often grease resistant or fat resistant. That's where we get nonstick coated cookware, um, nonstick coated clothing, furniture, carpets. These coatings are used in all sorts of things. It's also used in firefighting foam. So many of the higher levels of contamination have been at firefighting testing sites or practice facilities where they've used a lot of firefighting foam. Um, sometimes that's associated with like Air Force bases where they're prepared for a large fire with a lot of petroleum. Um, and PFAS helps those firefighting foams, particularly when it's petroleum-based fires. So where those 
firefighting facilities are and they do their training, they use a lot of the foam or they have historically. And so it has built up there. In Maine, one of the issues that is thought to be a potential uh, avenue of where contamination has, has happened has been the no stick coatings or, or grease resistant coatings on paper products. And so we know lots of Maine uh, paper mills are associated with very different types of paper products. Some of them may have been coated with these, uh, these coatings and then the waste from those paper mills uh, has to go somewhere. And that starts the investigation of where has that gone and, and how has that maybe contaminated things. Um, but in our own homes, if you have synthetic clothing, particularly if it has stain resistant coatings on it or water repellent coatings, that clothing sheds fibers and it turns into dust in your home. So that's one of the avenues into uh, of concern, particularly for children, is dust in your house. And uh, nonstick coatings on food wrappers is another big concern. So fast food wrappers, if you think of a pizza box, if it has that, that piece of paper, like parchment paper in the bottom that the pizza slides right off of, cheese doesn't stick to it, that would uh, typically be a, a PFAS compound that's been applied to that. Okay, so what I'd like to ask next is kind of how how this situation is affecting farms here in, in Maine. And you both have been working with farmers. So I thought if I could ask Jackie to speak about some of some of the work you've been doing around PFAS with, with farmers in Maine. Well, first of all, the reason that the PFAS ended up in a lot of our farm soils was because it has been associated with the spread of biosolids, um, also commonly known as sludge, uh, which on the surface seems like this, this awesome reuse of a waste product. In the spreading of it by some of our large farms and later research turned out that it did have PFAS in it and some water districts more than others, which is why we get back to Kennebec County kind of being a little bit of a hotbed for PFAS testing the information that the the state released about deer. And to be totally clear, organic farms haven't been allowed to spread what is known as sludge, but because it's, as Caleb said, a forever chemical, it persists in the soils. So it gets uptaken by the grass, the cows eat the grass, the livestock eat the grass, the deer eat the grass, the trees, what have you. And then um, of course, because we're we're at the apex of the food chain, um, we're getting the most exposure to PFAS. If you've paid attention to the news, it came up in the dairy farms that I work with in conjunction with whoever else works in dairy. The state does pretty routine testing of anything on the retail shelf. So all of that milk is safe and that has to do with um, reasons of dilution. It does get diluted down. Uh, when we when we commingle our milk into loads and then it goes to the dairy plant, the dairy plant processes it and puts it on the shelf. The state tests all the shelf, the retail store milk. That's all safe for consumption. And somewhere along the line, there was uh, some concern. So all the individual dairies were tested and it got narrowed down and narrowed down until we could work with some of the farms that that did show up positive. Can I ask if that is PFAS testing in milk, is that a routine thing or is that something that was added on once 
uh, it was realized that maybe there was some, some concern there. Originally, there was no PFAS testing in milk. That's a recent thing. Um, and, and now it's more routine. So the retail testing that happens in milk, it's a, it's a battery of tests for various things that have health risks to humans. So we mentioned the use of spreading biosolids as a nutrient source for farms, right? In terms of managing fertility for crops. I guess, Caleb, on maybe the scientific piece side, if I, I jump over to, to you, you know, how is that PFAS, how are those PFAS chemicals making their way through municipal wastewater streams and into this material that, that has been used as a, as a nutrient on large-scale farms? So I guess it's worth noting that because of the ubiquity of these PFAS chemicals, there's probably some small amount in all wastewater. Um, so all of our wastewater treatment, whether that's a home septic system that then gets pumped and put into a, a septage field um, or a, a wastewater treatment district is going to have some, but areas that are of really high concern are the ones where they probably were processing higher levels of these PFAS compounds. So right now the state is trying to sort of follow that, that chain, that that pathway um, of the highly contaminated sludge that would have been applied historically decades ago um, as a uh, crop fertility, a soil amendment, it's gonna be go into the groundwater a little bit. It's gonna be in the surface water a little bit. It's gonna attach to the soil particles a bit. And in those areas, they're going to be taken up by plants to some extent. And different plants take up different PFAS compounds differently. Um, there's so many different compounds. They get taken up at different rates and they also get moved diff to different parts of the plant at different rates. So it gets complicated quickly. Then you have livestock. Um, that's why milk was one of the areas of concern. Um, you have livestock grazing on plants or being fed plants that were grown on these contaminated soils. The PFAS compounds go into the, the animal's bodies and they don't actually excrete it through their urine very much. A bit is passing through in the manure. Um, some of that is just undigested plant material. So it's going back into the soil. So it's kind of recycling within the farm there, as well as any, any concern of manure leachate, you know, getting into the groundwater. Uh, it could continue that, but that's not much different from it being in the soil to begin with. But what is in actually ingested by the animal and, and absorbed is largely getting locked up in the animal's body, um, at least of the, the PFAS compounds that are of most concern. Um, similar to humans, they're going to get stuck in the body, essentially, of the animal. So it's going to go into the meat. Uh, and then the only high level of, of excretion, because it's not going out in the urine as much, is in the milk. And so there's the potential for a contaminated farm of which there are not too many, but there are a few that the Department of Environmental Protection and the Department of Agriculture and Conservation and Forestry, they've been identifying them and they're, that's, that's where they've really focused their testing on what are the most contaminated areas that are of the highest concern. Those could have been exporting beef and milk off of the farm. In other words, selling them. Um, and so some of the PFAS could be leaving the farm that way. 
The other concern would be manure from those animals. And if that gets composted and if that is applied back to the same farm, that's less concerning because it's, we already, we now know that those are contaminated farms and we know those are contaminated soils and we know to look. If it has been exported off the farm, you know, composted and um, used in a garden or used to grow other fields elsewhere that could sort of dilute the PFAS, which is in some sense good to get the concentration level lower at the most contaminated farm, but that means lower quantities of it might be present in other places. Uh, but that's essentially less of a concern for, for our human health. We're mostly looking at making sure, and, and we, I mean, really it's the state um, is doing this. They're, they're setting guidelines for uh, levels that could be present in the soil, as well as in animal feed, and in the milk and the meat and eggs. Um, levels present in waterways is another thing they're looking at in terms of uh, amounts that might be taken up by fish. And so levels present in fish is another concern. And so they're, they've been testing fish around the state. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio. And today we are talking about PFAS chemicals, commonly referred to as forever chemicals and their bioaccumulation in our soils and waterways. My guests on the show are three other MOFCA staff members, Ryan Dennett, who is the Director of Farmer Programs, Jackie Martinez-Perkins, who is MOFCA's Organic Livestock Specialist, and Caleb Goosen, MOFCA's Organic Crop and Conservation Specialist. So in some of these testing levels, or in terms of quantities, had those thresholds already been established or are those things that are like more actively being established as more research is being done current day? Yeah, it's, it's important to say that there's less we know about this issue than there is that we do know about this issue. There's, there's much more to be learned. The, the US EPA and FDA have not done much to set guidance on uh, or regulations on, on levels that are allowable. They have some recommendations for what's allowed in drinking water. So the, the Maine CDC has, the state of Maine has really led the way in the nation is something we should say that, that uh, the state of Maine has done a lot of work and um, taken some big strides to help set up some guidance. So they've set some thresholds uh, for water for milk, for meat, uh, eggs, and fish. The reason they're focusing on these animal products is that like many things, if, if you think about a contaminated bit of ground growing a pound of uh, vegetable, right? If you ate that pound of vegetable, you would get a certain amount of contamination that went through the plant. But if you're eating a pound of beef raised on that same contaminated land, it's eaten many more pounds of those vegetables to make that pound of beef. And so there's the, the potential that it has concentrated and accumulated more PFAS in that, in that material. So it's a matter of it bioaccumulating in the different organisms throughout the feed chain. Yeah, so it, it, it is tricky. We're still, I think as a, a nation um, and as humanity in general, we're still figuring out all the pathways in which it's, uh, 
affecting us. And so those limits that uh, the state has applied are the best guess that they have right now for how much of a total daily intake um, might be coming from those different portions of an average person's diet. So if you had con a contaminated home well, you would clearly want to reduce your intake from other sources. If you know that you have surrounded yourself with natural substances and you don't have it in the dust in your home, you're not breathing it in as much, uh, you know your water is clean, you know, your, your threshold for what could come through in contaminated food would be a little bit higher, but that no one can realistically make those calculations or know those things. I did want to ask about the use of biosolids spread on farms and that activity seems to have been, you know, a few decades back, but was there kind of like a, a period of time when that was a high activity or is it still continue today? or there's some different uses of those biosolid materials, some of that historic kind of perspective on the use of sludge so, nutrient? The spreading of biosolids kind of started in the 1970s. And then the introduction of PFAS into those biosolids seems to have been targeted heavily from the late 1980s through the early 1990s. Um, and then it, it got better regulated after the 90s. Some of the, the larger farms are still using it, using it as uh, an input, but because it's better regulated, they, they, don't, they don't feel as nervous using it. So what the state agencies are doing is targeting those farms that either were using it um, as a storage site or were using it heavily and had and still have open permits. So again, none of the organic farms are qualifying for those open permit state testing situations, but uh, there are enough farms that are still spreading biosolids that there's, there's that investigation happening. And again, it was, it, it kind of depended where those water districts were getting their, their treatments from. Piscataquis County may not have had uh, as high levels as Kennebec County or as Waldo County. So um, there's a certain amount of traceability that the state can do. Uh, and if you're concerned at all about your own land that, that you as a, a land holder or a land renter can do to look into the history of your land. I think I could maybe add also some uh, history and context for um, organic and biosolids with when Maine uh, organic standards were created a long time ago, um, it was not a, a high priority, but with the onset of federal organic regulations that superseded all smaller regulatory bodies for organic certification, biosolids were um, identified as something that would not be allowed in organic production. And so since the 90s, um, no organic farms in the country have been allowed to apply biosolids bio or any human waste, essentially. However, we, we really need to stress that at the time when these applications were being made, no one knew that PFAS would be an issue. And they also didn't know that it was in those biosolids to begin with. So no nobody was doing anything malicious. It was 
considered an acceptable practice. It was considered a, a good inexpensive source of fertility and a recycling of nutrients. The DEP essentially at that time said, here's a, a resource that you can use. And the farmers said, this is great. And it, it, you can't, they can't be blamed for that. Unfortunately, with the, the trace back from finding PFAS in milk at one point, and then it was traced up the chain to find out where it came from. Uh, that was the great, the great thing that happened that helped us find this contamination so that it could get taken out of the food stream. One of the things that I wanted to ask was if material had been spread back in the 70s and 80s, was, was PFAS even a known thing at that time? Or a lot of the products that Caleb, you had mentioned uh, earlier on, I think of like being a kid in the 80s and it was like Teflon pans were the greatest thing around because nothing stuck to it. So if some of these newer products that came along in later decades using materials, that's kind of where some of the process had, had occurred. And if we see more and more of those materials in the marketplace, we end up seeing more and more of PFAS residual contamination uh, in wastewater stream. Yeah, I'm not sure that uh, this group here is qualified to know what, what happened when, but anytime the, the production of those like stain resistant coatings was happening uh, that was entering the, the waste stream. But with the persistence of these compounds, the quantity just continues to build up over time because they don't get degraded. The other issue is that there's a small background contamination just happening all over the world. At the top of Mount Everest, they have found PFAS con uh, contamination way up in Northern Maine, uh, out in the woods some body of water was sampled and they found PFAS compounds in that water and it's probably atmospheric deposition. So uh, my own hometown in Vermont had a, a PFAS issue, uh, a factory that was applying it to a, a fabric. They, they were applying some sort of PFAS compounds and essentially sending it right up the smokestack, right out the ventilation stack. And it was getting going up into the atmosphere and being deposited primarily in the surrounding area, but some amount of it was going to continue and deposit all over. And, and that's just one factory out of thousands around the country, most likely. Okay. And then I think like around the country, historically has biosolids been used as a fertilizer in other parts of the country, similar to in Maine. It's not just unique to Maine itself, but it was something that was, was happening around the country. Oh, for sure. Um, there was a program that New York City was running where they were taking their biosolids to Pennsylvania um, and the farmers were getting them for free. So it, it does, it happens all over the country. And now there's this problem of, well, now how do we manage our waste um, in a sustainable way? Uh, it also, PFAS in biosolids is only gonna, it, it's gonna be highly variable. Uh, there's a, probably always gonna be a little bit, which is related to the amount in people's own bodies um, coming through their own waste stream. But these high, the, these concerning amounts, these very concerning amounts, I mean, I, I'm concerned about just the ubiquity that there's some small amount everywhere, but the very concerning amounts um, are, are more specific to uh, instances where there was a large amount going into the waste stream, probably from an industrial process. 
other parts of the country, PFAS contamination has come from being directly related to other industrial processes. And it's usually uh, direct input into a water system, you know, basically essentially dumping chemicals that used to happen more commonly or, or the through a smokestack and atmospheric deposition elsewhere. Uh, it's also worth noting that many of the, the most concerning compounds, because this is a, a big class of compounds, we've kind of identified the most concerning, um, typically PFOA and PFOS are two specific eight, eight carbon uh, length chains that are, are sort of the ones that are targeted the most as of highest concern. Most US-based industries have voluntarily agreed to phase out production of those compounds, but they're just switching to other PFAS compounds. Uh, and those other PFAS compounds have not yet been shown to be as much of a human health concern. And they often have a lower uh, residency time within our bodies. In other words, we excrete them through urine and feces faster, but they're also haven't been used as often or for as long. And so the true impact is yet to be seen. The other issue is that just because a US-based manufacturer is not making PFOA or maybe they still are, but they're pledging to phase it out, uh, that doesn't mean it isn't being made abroad for the same products. Um, and so some of our, our concerns um, is that you're still gonna be potentially buying in products that have these compounds on them. Um, as well as more concerning is the people that live in those areas in other countries where the, the chemicals are being produced. It, it really is around those factories that the highest contamination happens. And so we're sort of exporting our problem to other people. There's, there's very few published uh, peer-reviewed scientific articles on PFAS contamination into um, plants. So what happens when it gets into the soil and then how much do plants uptake? But one of the better ones that has come out in the past couple of years is uh, using a site that was close to a, uh, a PFOA, I think, um, factory uh, industrial complex in China. And so they found they, there's farmland right next to that factory facility and the, the level of contamination in those soils is incredibly high. To jump back to the to main farms, it seems like what would what would be the course of action if you found or when contaminated soil is found? And it seems like the concentrations are maybe, you know, there's a spot at the edge of one of your fields where the material was, you know, deposited by truckload and then spread out in the farms. It seems like those would be really high concentration areas potentially. But also, what is what are farms doing right now to try to to try to mitigate the the problem? So I think to take a step back, and I know many of the listeners may be thinking of their home gardens or farms that they're buying food from. The first thing would be to look and see if these biosolids were ever even applied uh, on or near the farm, uh, and that would be the DEP map where they they show locations, or at least generally, of uh, applications of biosolids or septage. That would be your first clue, like, oh, we should look at this more. Um, if, if they haven't been applied nearby, 
the likelihood that there's elevated levels in that soil or water is pretty low um, unless there's some other industrial process where they may have been released. You know, some factory that used a nonstick coating and didn't have great um, pollution controls. But if you did know that there was biosolids applied historically on your ground or on ground that you're concerned about, the first thing would be to find out you know, where was the the loading site, the the stockpiling site, because usually they were stockpiled in a big pile and then the farmer would spread them out over time. Um, and where that stockpile sat is where the, the contamination tends to be assumed to be the highest. The next step would be to be in conversation with the Department of Environmental Protection from the state and the Department of Agriculture and Conservation and Forestry to talk about the timeline for when they're going to get to you with testing, because essentially what they're doing right now is um, prioritizing which sites do they expect contamination to be the highest and therefore the, the greatest concern for affecting the, the, the general public. Um, and they've already been testing many of those, the ones that they've identified, and they're hoping to then test all the other sites. And so they're working their way down the list, but if you hadn't already been contacted by them and you knew that there was a, uh, a pile of sludge that had been applied near to your farm, um, you could contact them and talk about uh, what is the timeline, when might they be uh, coming to investigate your area. If you knew that they weren't getting to you in a while and you just wanted best practices, in terms of routes of conveyance, we kind of think of it as water and, you know, a private well near there might be contaminated. And if I was going to pay for any testing, which is very expensive, but if I wanted to do my own testing and not wait for the state, I would prioritize the water because that's going to be your telltale. If you find a high level in your personal well or in the groundwater nearby, then you know the soil is a greater chance of being contaminated. But also you just know that that's one uh, exposure pathway into your body that you would want to be concerned about and, and consider getting a, um, a filtration, a water filtration system installed. Then your next priority would be to try to think of where was it applied. And if you were going to do any soil test, consider testing there. This testing is all very tricky because we're talking about very um, small quantities of these chemicals that can have an impact. The testing is probably best left to professionals because uh, you know we've talked about all the other things that may contain these compounds. And so you could inadvertently contaminate your sample and show a higher level uh, than was actually there. Apart from that, where the compound goes into a plant is gonna have some role. So say you knew that your soil was contaminated uh, and you wanted to still grow things on it, you'd want to think of what are the, the avenues it's going to go through. With many contaminants in plants, we think of a, a sort of a gradient where if it comes from the soil, it's often highest in the roots, and then it's slightly lower in the stems, slightly lower in the leaves, and slightly lower in the flowers and fruit, and then lower lowest in the seeds. And PFAS, PFAS compounds have sort of a similar gradient, but with some big differences. One is that there's so many compounds that they all act a little differently. 
Um, the, the larger molecules, the longer chain tend to get stuck in the roots a little bit more, but there's some variability there as well. Um, whereas the smaller ones tend to go up further into the plant. In general, the leaves tend to accumulate a lot of these. And that's probably, it's not well known yet, but um, there's a good chance that these PFAS compounds are getting stuck in the molecules, um, in the chlorophyll molecules and in around the membranes around them. Dark green leaves, you know, our kales, our lettuce, our spinach, maybe not the best thing to grow in that land. But the good news is that grains and fruit crops show less uptake. So if you had questionable land, um, grain grown on it or fruit crops grown on it is probably going to be a lower concern. Um, and then with any contamination like this, we also talk about just the cleanliness of it. So say you had a lead contaminated soil, the soil on your carrot may have more lead in it than the carrot itself. Uh, and that would be similar with PFAS that the soil attached to a, a plant, you know, if you have winter squash resting on the ground, it may have soil stuck to it. You would want to um, clean that off well. You are tuned into Common Ground Radio, and today we are talking about PFAS chemicals, or commonly referred to as forever chemicals, and potential for contamination in farm soils and waterways. My guests for the remainder of the show are Caleb Goosen and Jackie Martinez-Perkins, both members of the MOFCA staff. One thing I was kind of curious about, because I know with soil sampling, at least through the University of Maine, there's like a basic lead scan that can be done. And I have seen some charts where it was kind of like, you know, lower levels, maybe, you know, make sure you're washing your vegetables well, but somewhere along that gradient, maybe root crops aren't, aren't, are not the thing to be growing and, and consuming uh, in those soils. Is in the, and just in terms of the testing, is it a very long process or relatively quick results uh, timeline there? Uh, it's good that you brought up the, the University of Maine soil testing lab. They are not capable of testing for PFAS. We're talking about such small concentrations that it's really expensive testing and highly specialized labs. Some of the, the levels in soils we're measuring in parts per trillion. And if you think about that, if you want an, a real life example of parts per trillion, that would be say one drop of food coloring diluted into 27 Olympic size swimming pools. That is one part per trillion. So if you're trying to find out whether you have 20 parts per trillion in your soil or a hundred parts per trillion, you need really good equipment. Uh, and you also need really good testing. The issues of concern are really when soils are getting towards one part per billion. And that would be more like a drop of food coloring or a few drops of food coloring in a large tanker truck. You know, if you think of the big oil trucks on the road or, or milk trucks or gas trucks, um, that is uh, approaching a, a higher amount that is really concerning. Um, but you still need really good testing in order to be able to catch that. So there are a few labs in Maine and New Hampshire and uh, probably other surrounding states that can do this testing. And there's information on how to find them on the, uh, some of the state websites. 
but I would still recommend possibly working with a consultant or a specialist to do the testing so that you're not contaminating the sample. And each test would be a few hundred dollars, most likely. Um, so it'd be very, very expensive. It's not something most, most folks can do. And I wouldn't recommend it unless you had a, a high suspicion that you had very contaminated soil and that you needed to act before you could wait to work with the state uh, through their own testing. I think in terms of, you know, activities on the ground, Jackie, I just wanted to jump over to you in terms of like, what are farms doing that are coming across this? You know, how, what are they having to do to kind of like change practices or wait for test results to come in to know? It seems like there might be a little bit of kind of an unknown period as farms wait for results. But I'm curious, like, what's the, what's the path forward if you do, uh, do find out that you have some contaminated soil? So the path forward that we've taken for milk is to first dump the milk, which is has has been um, caught in the manure handling system. And in hindsight, should that ever happen again, it would be uh, more advantageous to catch the milk in uh, a separate system, in separate holding tanks. Um, it's it's uh, becoming expensive to separate manure away from liquids uh, and then and then treat those uh, solids versus liquids separately. So um, we're learning as we go, which is not fun. But as far as dealing with those wastes, the state is still trying to decide what they want to do. So those are still being held in holding tanks. But for land that's already contaminated, there has been some switch to maybe growing some corn there because as Caleb said it, it the uptake of the PFAS chemicals is less into the seeds and then for farms that that have the choice of mixing their feeds you're targeting where those PFAS chemicals are heavy and where they're light or non-existent and you're mixing those feeds so that the exposure is uh, less and over a longer period of time um, so it gets diluted out Another, another management strategy as far as um, for things like making hay is to make sure, and this is just a good management strategy anyway, as far as the health of the, the grass and the soil, is to make sure that they're cutting just a little bit higher so that you're not getting um, as much actual dirt into your, your product as you would be if you, were, if you were cutting low. And when I say it benefits the grass, you're, you're, you're leaving more grass behind so it's not sapping the energy out of the roots as much. So you're mitigating your PFAS issue, but you're also maybe um, long-term affecting positively the health of your grasses. So, you know, not all bad, but um, just some strategies around diluting. Yeah. Another tactic I know at least one farm is doing that has suffered a lot of contamination and I give them great kudos for doing this is they've been cutting what was forested land to create new pasture land that's uncontaminated. In other words, they're finding, you know, new soil that is not going to be contaminated that they can access inexpensively in order to, to get away from their, their most contaminated soil. To jump back to that dilution piece, if you're able to focus on diluting quantities, say in, in animal feed, is there like a quick, 
a quick result there. If you were if you were feeding from soils that were heavily contaminated and you could test test levels in milk, if theoretically you could switch to not contaminated at all, would the change in the milk show up overnight or ever? Or is there fluctuation kind of in that in that realm? It definitely shows up in the milk fairly quickly, I would say over the course of weeks, but that's in milk um, because again, milk is excreted. So testing meat is a one-time shot. Um, I would be interested in knowing more about egg production since that is less of a one-time shot, but um, milk testing has been pretty much the go-to to see how fast these PFOSs are flushed out of systems. Um, it is also worth noting that we're talking about, um, st we're still talking about very rare instances where uh, individual farms are affected at high rates. Uh, this does not reflect the majority of Maine farms by any means. One, one thing to consider is how much of the PFAS has been taken into the animal's body and where, you know, like in milk production, some of that fat is and is coming from the, the body, the animal's own body, but some of it is being created from the feed. So the portion that's being created from the feed, that would change rapidly. Uh, whereas the portion that was being created from the animal's own energy reserves would not. With eggs, I believe it's a fairly rapid change. And um, I, I heard an anecdotal story where somebody was able to do some testing of a small flock and when they were confined for over the winter and being fed feed that was known to be clean and water that was known to be clean, the, the PFAS in the eggs was hardly present at all. When they were then put out in the yard, they were near a highly contaminated area. And the thought is that dust from the neighboring area may be uh, that they were ingesting through their normal chicken behaviors. Um, may have been contaminating the eggs because the PFAS in the eggs went up in that case. So those fluctuations can be, can be monitored. You can see change over a relatively short period of time, not you know, change over decades. Well, you can if you are in a highly contaminated enough area that uh, you can oh. find folks who are willing to pay for this testing because each test is very expensive. Um, so a lot of this uh, just reiterates how much we're in the early data acquisition stage of things. We're still trying to understand what's happening. And I'm using a very generous we, uh, because we're, we're, we at MOFCA are, are in a liaison role. No, we're not doing as much of the, the work on the ground. The, the work that is being done by others is really helping to, to inform this. So those, instances where it's lots of sampling and lots of testing to see how things change and how rapidly that is the information we're trying to learn, but your average farm is not going to be able to do that testing. It would be very, um, very expensive. Well, I think as we kind of near the end of the show, what are like, what are some of the hopes moving forward? Like what, what would you see as kind of best situation uh, coming out of this, if there is one? Um, well, I, I think hopefully the state can continue to do the, the good work that they're doing and continue to build upon it uh, to, to catch up, to find out where those issues are, what is the most concerning areas, and then what are the all the potential avenues 
the state has also, our legislature uh, did something historic this year where they banned all PFAS contain, containing everything um, by 2030, except for completely unavoidable things. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a tall order to get that figured out. So keep your eyes there. Um, but uh, a lot of PFAS is entering our our own homes through many other avenues, right? Um, fluorinated ski wax. Uh, I've heard guitar strings are sometimes coated in these. So much is going through in clothing and and the food wrappers. Uh, I think for the, your average person, uh, most of us are probably not at high contamination levels from our food, but if you have the privilege that that luckily many of us do have to eat whole foods that have uh, less packaging, right? So uh, fast foods with a lot of packaging and wrappers, those tend to, to have higher amounts. If you're able to cook at home, uh, you know, a cast iron pan, you're probably cutting a lot of it out. If you're able to either replace or just be more conscientious of your future clothing choices, um, fabrics that go into your furniture and your, your carpet, you're going to help reduce bone load. Um, but again, this, it, it does often, unfortunately, come down to privilege. Those who, who maybe, you know, you're stuck with the, the materials that you already own. Um, it's hard to just change everything. And um, it's also hard to know what, what materials presently contain um, PFAS and what don't and at what levels. And so that's one area that the new legislation will hopefully help us out in the coming decade. Uh, is that manufacturers will have to disclose that information to the state. Um, and then what we've talked a lot about today is these highly specific areas with very high contamination. And, and that's where the state is focusing the most right now and for good reason. So there's little that the rest of us can do or should do, I guess, in that instance, but to encourage continued work uh, and continued funding for this research and um, regulation. My hope um, as a lover of livestock for the future um, is for consumers not to be hysterical um, and for our producers to be well-educated. So again, going along with um, Caleb and the state is moving forward and doing the best they can. So to be as informed as possible on all sides um, and for our livestock producers to be able to make informed decisions uh, for the health of themselves, their animals and their consumers and uh, still find equitable uses for their land should they end up being a hotspot um, and uh, a supportive community of their peers if they, if they end up in a situation. Uh, so, so those are my hopes going forward is that we realize that yes, it's all around us. It's a, it's a future dealing with a chemical that's a, a pretty tough thing to break and that we are learning what our options are and uh, doing the best we can. Well, I think that that's good closing words to wrap up for the, the show today, for today's show. So I would just like to thank my guests for being on the show today. 
We had uh, Jackie Martinez Perkins and Caleb Goosen and Ryan Dennett on from the Mofka staff to uh, help us kind of work through this PFAS issue and, and understand what's going on. So thanks everyone for participating in today's show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm CJ Walk, your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU, which can be heard at 4 p.m. on the second Thursday of every month, right here and only here on your community radio station, WERU 89.9 FM and WERU.org. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more great programming.